Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11 today, page 980, or if you're using the large print Bible, 1164. It's going to read verses 1 through 11, but we're going to focus our attention only on the first two verses. But I think verses 1 through 11 give us uh, a sense of the atmosphere of this wonderful letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The church Bibles don't have a map at the back, I don't think, but uh, if you're geographically challenged, as I am profoundly in a debilitating way. If you can imagine Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean and draw a line northwards from the center of Crete right up the Aegean Sea, then you arrive more or less exactly at Philippi. And I think it's impossible for us to exaggerate how excited these Philippians must have been when the word spread Perhaps the day before they actually gathered to hear the first reading of this letter and word traveled round this relatively small city, Epaphroditus has come home. Epaphroditus has come home and he's brought a letter from the Apostle Paul. And as we begin to read this letter in our mind's eye, I think we can imagine this little church gathering together as soon as they possibly could, and perhaps whoever 
was the chief overseer in the church that Paul mentions here in verse 1. Uh, said, I think we should maybe sing a hymn first of all, and then I'll pray. And then Epaphroditus is going to read to us the letter that he's brought home from Paul, who was in prison, uh, probably in Rome, but possibly in Ephesus. And we're going to spend the evening listening to Epaphroditus read the letter. And then if you have any questions, then uh, Paul has authorized Epaphroditus to explain in more detail, to expound to us uh, the letter that he's written to us. And so Epaphroditus, at the appropriate point in the gathering, steps up with this little letter in his hand, and he began to read it. Epaphroditus, we discover in this letter, was probably one of the overseers of the church in Philippi, someone we would have called an elder, and the church had sent him with a gift to the Apostle Paul. Paul speaks about this right at the end of the letter. And either on the way there or when he got to where Paul was in prison, Epaphroditus had fallen profoundly sick. So sick, Paul says, he almost died. And the church in Philippi had heard that he had been sick. Um, Epaphroditus, I think, was like your mother, or at least like my mother. When she was sick, she was more concerned that people heard she was sick than she was concerned about being sick herself. And Paul says about Epaphroditus in chapter 2 that he was exactly like your mother. He was anxious, not just because he was sick, but because he'd heard they'd heard he was sick. And he knew they would be anxious about him, worrying about him, had he been able to do what they had sent him to do. It looks to me as though the Philippians really, really wanted Paul to send Timothy back to them. They knew Timothy, they loved Timothy. Maybe they'd even said to Epaphroditus, tell Paul we'd love to see Timothy again. And one of the rather gentlemanly things that Paul does in chapter 2 is he very delicately says, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. I hope in the near future you'll be able to see Timothy as well. But for the moment, it's more important Timothy be with me, and it's more important for you that Epaphroditus come back to you with this letter that I've taken time to write to you. And as you see Epaphroditus for the first time in months, uh, you inevitably think he really has been sick. He looks a lot thinner than when we bade him farewell with our letter to the Apostle Paul. And then Epaphroditus begins to read Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Uh, you might have noticed in the reading I actually stumbled once over the word all. It wasn't deliberate, but actually underlines for me how important this word all is in this letter. 
And as you read through the first 11 verses, you notice that Paul keeps using this word, all, 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 all the saints. And we'll see there's almost certainly a particular reason why he does that. What does it suggest? Well, in the first instance, it suggests this. About 10 years probably since Paul had come to Philippi and preached the gospel there, and a number of people and their families apparently had been converted to Christ. And he'd visited two, maybe three times in the last 10 years. So there were other newer Christians, newer converts to Christ who had come to know him a little. And undoubtedly, as the church had grown, there were some Christians in Philippi who had never actually met the man but heard so much about him. But he wanted all of them to hear what he had to say to them. And I think we can imagine that in that all, there are essentially a number of them that we know their names, some of them from this letter. So we name Epaphroditus, who is standing there in front of them. And if you turn over to chapter 4, uh, you'll see the names of a couple of women who may just have been a little nervous um, or even slightly embarrassed when they heard there was a letter from Paul, Euodia uh, and Syntyche, who had apparently fallen out with each other. And then he mentions somebody he, he calls his true work fellow. Um, and then somebody called Clement. But then I think when Epaphroditus read into verses 3 through 11 and read Paul saying, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Since I don't imagine they sat in the Aberdeen bus version of church life that we tend to do with the conductor at the front and all of us who are, who are going to pay our fares uh, looking this way, probably more domestic scene. And I can imagine, see in my mind's eye, that when Epaphroditus read these words out, the work that God began among you, I'm sure he's going to complete. Uh, they probably glanced at each other across the room. Uh, if she was still there and had really moved to Philippi, then uh, the lady who is known as Lydia, who traded in purple dye, and she had been the first convert in Philippi when the Lord had opened her heart. And maybe across the room, an unnamed girl that we read about also in Acts chapter 16, who had tormented Paul, a woman who had been abused by evil and wicked men, and eventually Paul had exorcised a demon out of her. And I think the implication is that since Christ had delivered her, she too was probably part of the fellowship of this church, two people from opposite ends of Philippian society. And then the jailer, the civil servant, who had been converted in the middle of an earthquake, uh, who had asked Paul what he must do to be saved. And Paul had said, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved and your household. And we can imagine all these people, different stages, actually very beautifully 
as Acts 16 makes plain, brought to Jesus Christ in very different ways, like in any church. Not all uh, cookie-cutter versions of each other's conversion, but brought providentially together, loving to share each other's stories. How did you get here? I got here because the Lord opened my heart. I got here because the Lord Jesus Christ delivered me from evil powers. I got here actually in the most dramatic way in the middle of an earthquake. And these others that we don't know how they came to Christ, but presumably came to Christ either through the short season of Paul's preaching or through the wonderful transformation that they had seen in these young Christians' lives. No wonder, as David said, uh, Paul speaks about this church as his crown and joy. And therefore, not surprising, as I say, that they must have been really excited when word went from one home to another home, Epaphroditus is back which was good news, but for them even better news, and he's brought a letter from Paul. And so I think we can envisage these Philippians gathering together with a great sense of excitement to hear Philippians read, and I presume also to hear Epaphroditus then expound Philippians. What did Paul mean by this? Well, he told me this is what he meant. He told me to say, if they ask you about this, then you can explain it this way. Tremendous enthusiasm to hear the Word of God. And the thought crossed my mind during the week, uh, perhaps um, I'm just getting old and gray I wonder how many times in my lifetime as a, a minister and preacher of God's Word, the congregations I've served have been even as remotely excited about a new series as the Philippians were. Quite a challenging question, isn't it? Of course, looking back... Um, I need to be the first to admit, maybe the fault is mine. Um, I had a member of one of the congregations I served used to phone me up regularly on a Monday morning, which is often a blue time, incidentally, for your preachers, and encourage me to stick to writing books. <laughs> My only encouragement in that was that every time he phoned me, he complained he'd never been made an elder. And as far as I could read the New Testament, having the gift of complaining was not a sign of being qualified for the eldership. And then he told me one day, to the deliverance of my soul, that he was worth both myself and my predecessor put together. And since my predecessor had been a giant of a preacher, I thought, uh, even if you take me away from my predecessor, uh, you are not remotely worth my predecessor. Nevertheless, it could still be the preacher's fault, couldn't it? Um, usually, either because he is misplaced, some of the people David knows apparently feel they're misplaced, um, 
or because there is a lack of affection between the preacher and the people. Because where that affection is present, uh, the people are usually grateful for the ministry of the Word. But my question is, how can we recapture that? Uh, Of course, we are not the Philippians, and there must have been something unique to them about receiving this letter. But how can we at least begin to recapture that? I think in three ways. First of all, by remembering that this is a letter from an apostle. And in the New Testament, the apostles, including the apostle Paul, this is the reason he is so emphatic about the fact that he is a real apostle. The apostles were charged by Jesus Christ to speak authoritatively and in a sense exclusively in his name, with his authority. You read through uh, the farewell discourse in John 14 through 16, you will notice how emphatic at points Jesus is that he has prepared them to give his message, prepared them uniquely as apostles to give his message to the whole Christian community and to the world. And when we when we reflect, consciously reflect on the fact this is a living representative of Jesus Christ charged to speak to the church, then I think we begin to appreciate the privilege that Christ has given to us, that he has made provision for not only their future, but for our future. And there's a second reason, I think, that helps us recapture some of this, and that is the simple fact that this is part of all Scripture. And how Peter comments on uh, Paul's letters, sometimes difficult to understand, and says people, people misunderstand them and wrench them out of context as they do the other scriptures. So that there was this consciousness, that right from the beginning apparently in the Christian church, that what the apostles were writing were actually new scriptures, fitted into the description that Paul gives in 2 Timothy 3, uh, verse 17, uh, breathed out by God through the Spirit, through their words, and therefore profitable for teaching, for reproving, convicting us of sin, for correcting, transforming us into the likeness of Christ and equipping us to serve Him. In a sense, that's a grid for everything in Philippians. That's a grid for our study of it. We're we're listening to divine teaching. We know it's going to touch our consciences and awaken us. We know it's going to reshape us into the likeness of Christ. We know it's going to send us out equipped to serve Christ in the world. But there's a third reason, I think, that we can get into any of Paul's letters, and perhaps especially into Philippians. And that's because this particular church was the kind of church we would like to be. This particular church is the kind of church we would like to be. A joy and crown church. Now, it may be some of David's friends minister in churches where they couldn't 
care less about being a joint crown church. If there's anything important to us here, it is that we want to be a joy and crown church. We don't want the joy of the Lord to be diminished, and we don't want the crown to become tarnished. Remember years ago uh, in a large church in the United States, standing at the front of the church while uh, the elders were receiving new members stretched all the way across the front of the church, almost the size of a Scottish church stretched across the front. And he whispered to me, he was the clerk of session, he said to me, don't you think this is the greatest church in the world? And I've learned the line of least resistance in my life. I probably made a few noises that he thought was probably Scottish Gaelic. But what I thought was, no, I actually think the church I belong to is the greatest church in the world. But I'm really glad you think the church you belong to is the greatest church in the world. Not by comparison with other churches, but for you, you simply wouldn't want to be anywhere else unless the Lord moves you on. And that was what Paul saw in this Philippian church. Um, he almost says, he actually uses the same expression to the Thessalonians, but the only other church he uses it in connection with. He almost says, at least he says, as far as I'm concerned, you're one of the greatest churches in the world. I love you deeply. When we come to it like this, that's, that's the inside, as it were, of the atmosphere of Philippians that's evident in verses 3 through 11. Then uh, I think it opens a door for us to reflect on the way in which Christ is speaking to us. This was written to the Philippians, but it was kept in God's providence, not only for the Philippians and by the Philippians, but kept for us. And it's interesting, in, in these first two verses, if you're familiar uh, with Paul's letters, Paul's letters tend to follow kind of standard contemporary form of most letters that were letters of friendship between people. Um, he introduces himself. It's only recently it's dawned on us Westerners in the way we use emails that it's a really good thing not to put the signature at the end of the letter, but at the beginning of the letter. And so he introduces himself. Timothy's with him. He gives this little description of how he thinks about those to whom he's writing. And then he expresses what he does in almost all his letters, a thanksgiving, why he thanks God for them, what he is especially thankful to God for what he sees in their lives. And that's what he develops in verses 3 to 11. But it's not so much these standard elements that I think are worth noting, it, it's the particular elements in these two verses that I think are very illuminating. Um, and I want us to notice the obvious three. 
The first is the way Paul describes himself. The second is the way Paul speaks about the Philippians. And obviously the third is the words that he uses to send them greetings. It's interesting to notice what Paul says here. Uh, It's also, I think, even more interesting to notice what he doesn't say. Um, That gives away what we might think of as, as Paul's almost subconscious reaction to the Philippians. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the introduction to most of Paul's letters, you'll notice that there's something different about this one. And what's different about this one is what he doesn't say. First of all, he doesn't say he's an apostle. And that's something he almost always does. And the second thing he doesn't say here in the introduction is what becomes obvious to us later on in the letter, and that is that he's a prisoner in Rome, I think almost certainly, possibly, as I said earlier, in Ephesus. I mean, like, the two most obvious things about him he doesn't mention. First, his authoritative role in the life of the Christian church, and second, his present plight as a prisoner. He doesn't appeal in this sense, in this letter, first of all, to his authority in relationship to them, and he doesn't reach out, first of all, for their sympathy. He writes to them as a servant of Jesus Christ. I don't know if it's still true. Um, It certainly used to be true that how you described yourself, how you named yourself to someone said something about the kind of relationship that you had with them. Um, so, try and illustrate this. In the, in the dim and distant days in the great city of Glasgow, where we lived, um, I found myself with several uh, either credit cards or store cards in my wallet. And you know, when you apply for one of these cards, you often, at least today, you get a whole series of possible ways of designating yourself. So it might be Mr., it might be Doctor, it might be Reverend, uh, it might be General, it might be Admiral, it might be any of these. And doing a kind of unscientific sociological experiment, I thought, I'm going to use a whole series of different designations in these different cards. And there was one store, an upmarket store, into which I occasionally went, but only to buy somewhere near the downmarket things that they also sold. There was, there was an upmarket store where I could determine the kind of service I would get, the response I would get, by the name on the card. So was it Mr.? Or was it Reverend? Or was it Doctor? Or was it Professor? And if that's an ascending scale of values, um, obviously not if you're a surgeon where you go from doctor to mister, I know that. Um, I could always tell that if I used a, a higher up title, I would undoubtedly get better service. It was as though I was saying to the person behind the counter, do you know who I am? 
Do you know my position? And we're familiar with that, aren't we? That we, our relationships come to expression, how we think about ourselves come to expression in the way we, we describe ourselves. I had a wonderful friend now in glory who had a marvelous uh, loving spirit, but also a great old-fashioned curmudgeonliness about him. And the first time he went in to get his hair cut in a new town, and the girl who was 18 said to him, what's your name? And he told her his name, and she said, what's your first name? He knew what was coming, that when he sat in the seat, he would get his first name again, again, again. And so he said, to you, it's doctor. <laughs> well, that changed the relationship. And I think it is significant precisely because so often Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, that here he introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And they knew that. They had seen that. And if anything, that was, that was what most of all he wanted to see reproduced in them. That was what was, he thought, going wrong with the Odia and Suntiki. They were ceasing to be servants of each other as servants of Jesus Christ, and rather seeking to lord it over, to dominate in some way the other member of the friendship. And so unlike Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, in Philippians. It's, as far as our relationship is concerned, the most important thing about me in relation to you is that I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, that's teaching, isn't it? And I guess for many of us, that's also rebuke. But it's also correction from what we are. This is what Christ, the suffering servant, wants to make of us. And that's what equips us, isn't it? That's what, that's what makes Christians different in the world from everyone else. No one you ever meet who isn't a Christian believer describes themselves as a servant of Jesus Christ. It is a uniquely Christian designation. And it's a wonderful, illuminating moment as to why there was such a bond between the Apostle Paul and these Philippians. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is how we think about ourselves is so significant in the way in which we engage with others. You think about yourself first and foremost as a servant of Jesus Christ. And then I want you to notice the way in which he thinks about the Philippians. And you'll notice that, uh, in a sense, the whole of Philippians is kind of embedded in the way in which he describes them. He, he describes them in, in what we might think of as three spheres, three concentric circles. First of all, they are saints in Christ. That is, they have been set apart. They have been reserved for the Lord Jesus. But he describes them as saints in Christ. 
And since it's just possible for somebody to read through Paul's letters again and again and again and never notice the significance of this preposition in, let me just underline it for you. Um, I remember as a young Christian reading Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, when Paul speaks about knowing a man in Christ a number of years ago, and as a young teenager thinking, who was this man in Christ that Paul knew? It really it puzzled me. Now, yeah, I might have been thick, but it was only slowly it dawned on me. He was actually describing himself. And that it's altogether possible that the Apostle Paul never once described himself as a Christian. I mean, that seems, may seem shocking to us. But I think it's highly likely that he almost never or never said in response to a question about his faith, I am a Christian. Because it was a slur word only three times used in the New Testament, and probably, certainly two of them, it's a slur word, and probably a slur word in the third occasion as well. It was like Puritan, or fundamentalist, spat out by opponents, defined by opponents. As you read through Paul's letters, scores of times, scores and scores of times, when he describes himself and his fellow believers, he describes them as men and women in Christ. I am a man, I am a woman in Christ, united to Christ, drinking from the riches, the resources, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that in this little introduction, there is a mammoth, statement made that for most of us is life transforming because it changes the way we think about ourselves. We are in Christ. But, says Paul, they're also at Philippi. Philippi, as you probably know, was a Roman colony. In Philippi, Caesar is Lord. But now for those who are in Christ, as Remember, he goes on to say in chapter 2, Jesus is Lord. And that's the explanation for the new conflicts that these believers are going to know as they live in the Roman colony of Philippi. As he'll say later on, you may be citizens of Rome, as it were, as, as people who live in this Roman colony, but your real citizenship is in heaven. And if you're a new Christian, that's the reason why you may be wondering, why is it that life seems to be more difficult for me now than before it was, when I wasn't a Christian? Because you're now living in two worlds and not one. Because you're now living under a lordship that is openly contested in the world in which you live. And you're living in a day when that is becoming increasingly obvious. And so it was for the Christians in Philippi. They were in Christ Jesus, but they were also at Philippi. And then uh, Paul adds this unique addendum to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, 
with the overseers and deacons. Um, we do not know if any of the other churches to whom Paul writes had both elders and deacons. And what he's saying here is, on the one hand, this is a beautifully ordered church where the people are cared for. And I think he may also be giving them just a little, little, little gentlemanly hint that they're going to need that care from their elders and deacons. Partly because they're going to face threats from within. And he gives hints in chapter 2 and then again in chapter 4 with the tensions between Euodia and Syntyche. Um, that these little tensions could very easily spread in the church and destroy its unity. And they're going to need the overseers and the deacons to care for them. And they're also going to need their care because there will be threats from the outside. And he mentions uh, one or two possibly different threats that are going to uh, come from the outside. People he calls dogs, people about whom he says their God is their belly and they're, they're coming, Paul thinks, to destroy what Christ began to do in Philippi. And so the overseers, there's just a little nudge to the overseers, need to be on your tiptoes, need to be on the lookout, need to care for all of the flock. Uh, true yoke fellow, as he says in in chapter 4, maybe that was one of the overseers. Um, make sure you help Euodia and Syntyche. They want to say, we'll sort this out ourselves, but they're not capable of sorting it out themselves. They need you. May take courage to minister to them. But remember, it's the whole church that's at stake here, and not just the relationship between two apparently significant members. And this is such an expression of the fact that he doesn't want the joy to be diminished or the gold to be tarnished. And the third element in these first two verses is the way in which he sends greetings. Greetings to you, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's assumed whenever Paul does that, that he's thinking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit too. He speaks in chapter 2 about the way in which they're bound together in the Spirit. It's often thought that what Paul is doing here is combining a, a kind of classical world greeting and a, an Old Testament greeting. And I rather think that actually what he's doing is simply making Christian the great Old Testament greeting of the Aaronic benediction in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord be gracious to you and grant you his peace. The grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace, as the song says, that is greater than all my sin. That's what they needed. That's what we need grace that is greater than all of our sin. Paul says in Romans 5, where sin has abounded, grace superabounds. 
And that's what brings peace, shalom. And we can already sense as we kind of fast forward it into some of the things Paul says in this letter that that was what he wanted the elders, the overseers, and the deacons to guard. This harmony, this unity, this well-being, this sense of being home and at home, being the family of God, where the external designations become absolutely irrelevant. And the only thing that matters is that we are together saints in Christ Jesus, living there in Philippi, here living in Aberdeen. Because as he'll go on to say, that's the kind of church family that attracts non-Christians and draws them to Jesus Christ. And when that's true of a church, or to put it in simple terms, when we become a church where people are converted to Jesus Christ, then we are beginning to become a church that is really a joy and is really a crowd. And I'm not inviting an amen, but don't we all want to say amen to that, to be a joy and crown church? Well, that would be the greatest thing of all. Now let's pray that we may be. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for its riches. Thank you for its teaching and its application. Thank you especially for the way in which our Lord Jesus has cared enough for the Philippian church and for our church as to give authority to apostles to address our situation, our needs, our hopes, our aspirations. We pray that as we yield to your voice, Lord Jesus, we too may become not only a joy and crown to others, but surely a joy and crown to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.